So I want to welcome everyone here, especially those who are in cyberspace. The only time I look up to them is now. And after that, they're up there. So when I look at you, they think I'm looking down. But hello, this is it. Welcome to Sunday morning praise and worship service for New Hope Chapel. Amen. And this morning, <clears throat> we return to our series, which I've entitled The Philippian Church, A Model for New Hope Chapel. This is the second, part two this morning. It is titled, A Church of Love Demonstrated. You know, our text is Philippians 1, verses 9 through 11. Of course, it's printed in your handouts. It's printed in the New King James, together with the sermon outline for your easy reference. Please walk with me, as I always do, through Psalm 1914. So, dear Lord, this morning, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen? You know, our text this morning, as I mentioned, is uh, in the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And this is how it reads. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen? You know, one of the reasons Paul was a man of great power is because he was a man of prayer. A reason why Paul was a man of exalted privilege was because he was a man of prayer. And the reason why Paul was a man of high position was that Paul was indeed a man of prayer. And every church that Paul founded was an answer to prayer. And every book that he wrote was born out of a heart of prayer. You know, every sermon he delivered was bathed in the power of prayer. So here in our text, we catch a glimpse of how great a prayer warrior Paul was. See, the Philippian church was expectantly on Paul's private prayer list. Notice how we pray for this church. He prayed sensitively. Paul prayed in those areas and for those areas that the church was in most need of for heaven's help and for God's guidance. And he prayed supernaturally. Remember that when Paul was praying this prayer, he was incarcerated. He was in the Mabertine prison, which was nothing more than a lowly, filthy dungeon. A thousand miles away from this church, yet Paul, remaining in a chain and under guard, he knew that he could reach this church through prayer. He knew that they could bind his body, but they could not bind his prayers. And if you notice in our text, he prayed specifically under these conditions. He, his prayer was pointed, it was direct. And so often we pray for, dear Lord, dear God, bless our church. Or we say, dear God, guide our church. Well, those kind of prayers are nothing more than vague generalities which will invoke a vague answer. Paul's prayer was to the point. Now, what Paul prayed for this church, Philippians, 
I believe he would pray for our church, what Paul desired for that church, we want for this church. And so first consider in your outline a compassion that flows. And our text, verse 9, states, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. See here the word abound in the Greek is a Greek word that literally means to flow, or better yet, to overflow. It's the picture of water being poured into a bucket and just keep pouring and pouring. We've all experienced that until the bucket completely overflows. You know, the heart of a child, a child of God, should overflow with the love of God. We are told in Romans 5 5, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Now here, the words in the Greek, poured out, literally mean flooded. Our spirits should be flooded with our love. You know, our church should overflow with love. I, I don't know how many cubic feet of water this sanctuary could hold, but I can get the feeling that it would be a lot. But this sanctuary should not be able to hold and contain our love. We should have such love that it just oozes, it just floods through the windows into the highways and the byways of this entire area. Considering your outline that love should be increasing. You know, verse 9a states, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more. It's clear, our love should flow more and more. You know, there's one thing you can never have too much of in a church, and that's love. In fact, there are three things which a church can never have enough of. First of all, a church can never have enough faith. You know, I believe it is dangerous to not have enough faith in God, and you can never have too much faith in God. You know, evangelism, soul winning. I do not believe a church ever has enough soul winners. We have some people in this church that do go out and they do share their faith, but I pray that every man, woman, boy, and girl who knows the Lord in this church would be sharing the gospel. And then thirdly, love. No church ever has too much love. You know, one of the keys to growing a great church is love. That's not to say that a church cannot grow without love, but it will definitely grow with love. People oftentimes will go miles and miles to bypass churches to go to a church that loves. I heard a story, a true story, about a man who used to drive all the way across town. And in this part of the country, driving more than 20 minutes, you've got to pack a lunch. And so he would drive all the way across town to a church, and he would pass this church and this church and this church. Someone said, why are you passing all these churches nearby, close to your neighborhood, to go all the way to a church across town? His obvious answer was, in that church, they love people. Listen, love is a universal language. Everybody understands love. Everybody knows when they receive love. And everybody understands that everybody needs love. You know, the world is starved for love. Just look at the music that's prevalent in our society. Songwriters tell us that what the world needs now is love, sweet love, or it's love that makes the world go around, or you're nobody until somebody loves you. Did I hit songs you knew? The older guys. 
You see, the one place, regardless of race, color, or creed, that ought to be able to find love for someone is in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. But listen, love should ever be on the increase. Love never remains the same. Love is either growing or it is dying. So husbands, you either love your wife more than you did yesterday or less. But you do not love her the same. See, love is like a tide. It's either ebbing or it is flowing. And then consider in your outline that love should be intelligent. You know, again, I mentioned 9A, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more. But then in 9B, in knowledge and all discernment. You know, the river of love should flow between the banks of knowledge and discernment because a river without banks will soon become a flood. The river of love, unless it's contained within the banks of knowledge and discernment, is, will become simply a raging flood full of sentimentality that is useless. And love is to be guided by knowledge and discernment. And here, when they mention knowledge, the word knowledge refers to the knowledge of the word of God. And so real love is to be guided by the word of God. We don't, some sentiment is good, but we don't just need sentiment, we need sense. And a full heart is no excuse for an empty head. Love to be defined has to be directed and distributed according to the will of God. And since God is love, and since he wrote the Bible, it seems to me that the Bible is the preeminent book of love. In fact, I'm sure you've heard it say that the Bible is God's love story, love letter to mankind. Now, a lot of what the world calls love today isn't love at all. For example, a mother will say, I love little Junior so much that I can't spank him. She calls her weakness love. But the Bible says in Proverbs 13, 24, he who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. The word of God is telling us that real love for your child is when you take the truth of the word of God and apply it to the seat of his pants. Second example, a man will say to a woman, if you love me, give yourself to me. Prove your love. Or he will say, I love you and you love me, so it must be right. And yet the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. You see, real love is guided by the truth of the word of God. And I know that there are some today who would like to pay place a period after the word more in our verse 9 and leave off knowledge and discernment. They say all that really matters is love. Let's just love one another. Let's be open-minded. And I say you can be so open-minded that your brains will fall out. Amen. Let me tell you something. There is one thing that is more important than love. That is truth. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 13, 6 states, love rejoices in the truth. 
Jesus did not say, I am the way, the love, and the life. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus did not say, the love will set you free. He said, the truth will set you free. So God is not only love, but he's also light and real love, speaks the truth and stands for truth. Then consider number two in your outline, a comprehension that knows. Our text, verse 10a, states that you may approve the things that are excellent. Well, here the word approve literally means to see if something is real. Or if I could use another word that has fallen into disrepute today, that's the word discrimination. To discriminate based on prejudice is bad. But to discriminate based on the word of God is good. So we are to test and we are to choose those things that are excellent. The word literally means things that are best. That is, Paul prays that we would have the wisdom, the understanding, and the discernment to choose those things which are best. You see, the Christian life is not a choice between good and bad. I don't wake up every morning and have to decide, well, I, am I going to get drunk today? Am I going to smoke dope today? See, those choices have been made long ago. I'm just not going to do those sorts of things today. It's different now. I do not now have to choose between the good and the bad. I have enough difficulty trying to choose between the good and the best. And the difference between a Christian and an unbeliever is this. The unbeliever is just spending his life. The Christian is investing his life. I want the greatest return I can get on the investment of my life. I have a little poem here that I think is true. It reads, You have only one life. It will soon be past. And only what's done for Christ will last. You see, many Christians are failing right here in their Christian life because they are not choosing what is best. There are some there are some who would not dare to miss that meeting of the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Left-Handed Grandmothers with Athlete's Foot. But they do not have time to come to church service. There are some who would pay to coach little league baseball or football, but you couldn't pay them to lead a Bible study. Listen, a lot of what we think is so important and so wonderful in this life is going to go up in a puff of smoke at the judgment seat of Christ. Every now and then people will say, have you read any good books lately? I don't have time to read good books. Having enough time trying to keep up with the best books. The Bible, for example. Consider that Paul could have been sidetracked so easily as we often do ourselves. He could have crusaded full-time to abolish slavery. He could have founded a temperance league against alcohol. He could have gone into family and marital counseling. But Paul said in Philippians 13, I'm sorry, Philippians 3, 13, one thing I do, 
I press on toward the goal for the price of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In everything we do, we need to ask two questions. Not only is it harmful, but also is it helpful? Listen, I beg you. I beg you to invest your life in those activities and with those people that will bring the greatest return to God. Consider your outline number three, a character that glows. Verse 10b states, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. You know, talk, Paul talks about our loving in verse 9. He talks about our learning in verse 10a. And here in 10b, he talks about our living. A person who is loving and learning is really living. So Paul here is talking about our character. Someone has said that character is what a person is in the dark. Charles Spurgeon said, character needs no epitaph. You can bury a man, but his character will beat the hearse back from the grave. In other words, character remains and lives on. And we need Christians with a confession. We need Christians with commitment. But we especially need Christians with character. Consider in your outline the integrity of our character. The word sincere in 10b comes from a Latin word sincera, S-I-N-E-C-E-R-A, that literally means without wax. In the days of Paul, the porcelain industry was big business. Now the fine and the thinner the porcelain, the more expensive. But oftentimes while making a piece of beautiful porcelain, the potter would experience a crack in the porcelain while it was heating in the oven. Now, honest dealers would discard that porcelain. But dishonest dealers would take wax and melt it and fill it up into the cracks of the porcelain. And the only way that you could tell this crack was in the porcelain would be to hold it up to the light of the sun. Those dealers who were reputable and honest would declare and put a label on their porcelain that said, seen seda, to show that it was without wax, without a flaw, and without a crack. We ought to live without wax. You know, we ought to live in such a way that we are not afraid of our lives being put up in the light of the word of God to show and reveal what it's really like. Considering your outline, the influence of our character. We're not to be sinless. We will not be sinless this side of heaven. But we are to be shameless. Those words in our text, verse 10b, without offense, they mean stumble against or something that causes you to stumble. So you're either a stepping stone or a stumbling block for Jesus. The greatest argument for Christianity is a professing Christian. The biggest argument against Christianity is a professing Christian. Someone was sharing Jesus with Nietzsche. That cynical German philosopher said, 
If you're going to want me to believe in your Redeemer, you're going to have to look a little more redeemed. How important it is that our character, what we are, reflects accurately our confession, what we say we are. And I heard about a man in Texas who was a member of a well-known church. And one day this man woke up late. He rushed to work for an important meeting and tried to make up the time lost. But on his way to work, he encountered a traffic jam. There was a car in front of him, a car behind him, and cars on either side of him. And he couldn't go anywhere. He was already a little steamed because he was running late. And as he sat there for a while, the man behind him honked his horn. He thought to himself, what's the matter with this guy? He can see that I cannot move. The man behind again honked his horn. This was a cause of great irritation. Our friend felt his blood pressure begin to rise. And finally, the man honked his horn the third time. And this member of a well-known church got out of the car, walked back to that other man. The man rolled down his window, and our friend said, if you blow this horn at me one more time, I'm going to smear your face all over this freeway. The man sitting behind the wheel was dumbfounded. He said, what's wrong with you? Doesn't your bumper sticker say, honk if you love Jesus? The damage has been done. Character should reflect accurately our confession. Lastly, consider the fourth in your outline, a commitment that shows. Our verse 11 states, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. The Christian life is like a tree planted in the soil of sincerity on the banks of knowledge and discernment by the river of love. This kind of tree will be fruitful. And when a tree is fruitful, you don't have to ask what kind of a tree it is. Just look at the fruit. But Jesus said, we're not to be judging one another. But he did say we are to be fruit inspectors. He said, by their fruit you shall know them. Our commitment to Jesus is to show fruit. But I want you to notice that this fruit, it's not our righteousness. It is his righteousness. It is his righteousness born through him, through Jesus Christ. And the way to bear fruit is to be rooted and grounded in Jesus. Jesus said in John 15, 4-5, Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, in him bears much fruit. From apart, apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, listen. Fruit is not what the branch bears for the tree. It's what the tree bears through the branch. And then the tree, and not the branch, gets the glory. The difference between spiritual fruit and human religious activity is that spiritual fruit brings glory to Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask the praise team if they would take the platform.
to bring us to a close, closing song of praise. You know, one of the things that was suggested by the praise team, specifically by Kate, and I thought it was excellent, that we asked everybody to stand up for this closing song. And then I asked you guys to obliterate the aisles between you and to just come together. And the reason we want to come together, I finally got what Kate was, was leading toward, is that we are demonstrating the unity that we have one to the other. So come together and see if we can be holding hands as we sing together come in on, unity. Let's show the love now. Let's show the love. Get them. One in the spirit. Come on, Jack, and get up. Oh, come on. Come on. Over here. Over here. Come on, Jason. Well, I wanted you. Oh, I got you in the zone. Everybody's going to know that I want you. Praise to the Spirit.
stay standing. I just have a couple of comments. See, I believe that if Paul was on this platform here this morning and led us in prayer, I think his prayer would sound something like this. Jesus, in fact, I took this prayer from the scripture. Jesus, my Savior, in my behavior, help me to be like thee, harmless and holy, patient and lowly, perfect and pure like thee. Amen. Well, we know that service is over, and I want you to go with these thoughts. Still building on that project of making sure that New Hope Chapel becomes the Philippian Church. And next week, we will have the third of the series. I've titled that, Walking the Life. So I'll see you all next week. Amen? Amen. Amen.